Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Brian Miller was an award-winning restaurant critic for the New York Times from the early 1980s to the mid-1990s, dining out over 5,100 times in the United States and abroad. He wrote weekly recipe and kitchen equipment columns and books. He was a public speaker and a commentator on radio and television. In a front-page profile, the Wine Spectator declared him the most powerful restaurant critic in America. But there were also some serious problems, which he recounts in a new book from Skyhorse called Dining in the Dark, a famed restaurant critic's struggle with and triumph over depression. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to our show now. It's great to talk with you again, Brian. Welcome. Hi, Leonard. Good to see you. Uh, I interviewed you a number of times over the years, but I had no idea that you were suffering from depression at the time. Were, were many people aware of your struggle? No, it's not the kind of thing you uh, spread around. I think for most of those years, it was just my inner family and my wives. Because your various jobs involved a lot of socializing. Yes. And, you know, socializing is the bane of anyone with depression. One of the main symptoms is you do not want to interact with normal people because you, you have the feeling that that you are in it inarticulate that whatever you're saying will be nonsense to the other people and plus it's just painful to to garner the energy to carry on conversations it's very hard to explain but um no i didn't uh, i told one person at the new york times and that was it uh were you at times inarticulate were people shocked by your inability to compose a sentence? No, I, I often say that um, depression is kind of like the mafia. It's 50% intimidation in that uh, you know, depression told me I was inarticulate. I couldn't write. I should not be talking to people. Um, but because of my job, I had to, you know, jump in and do it anyway. And, you know, you can, you can do it. You know, the mob sort of intimidates you when they want you to quit. Um, but I did write, I did conduct interviews. I, for 20 years, I, I continued it. It was you know, there may be blood pouring out of your eyeballs, but I managed to continue writing. I never missed a deadline. You write that you were felled in 1982 by what might be called a double helping of mental illness. That was, wasn't long after you'd begun reviewing restaurants for The New York Times. Well, actually, it was not, uh, not long before oh. I, I started. In fact, I... Uh, I was in very bad shape in the beginning and frightened. I didn't know what was going on. And I was at the Times, and at that point, I was writing about food and a little wine and general features. And the restaurant critic, Mimi Sheraton, up and quit. Hmm. So there'd been a group with a number. Of, uh, there'd been a a number of different restaurant critics for a while, weren't there? Uh, well, we had, you know, there was Craig Claiborne. Yeah, he, he was the longstanding one, and then a bunch followed him. A bunch followed very quickly um, until Mimi arrived. Mimi stayed about seven years, 
I hold the record at 10. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she left, I was called into the office of Arthur Gelb, who's the who's assistant managing editor. He, he's the man who created all the time special sections, and he, he was in charge of features. And he said to me, "We, I want you to uh, be the restaurant critic. And I was, I, you know, I, all I could do just to get to the office. So it's, I tried to come up with an excuse. And I said, you know, I've only been at the paper nine months and it's very intimidating and it's very, you know, pressured. And I just don't think I'm ready for that spotlight. And he was flabbergasted that mm. someone would turn down a big promotion and a raise. He said he'd never seen that. But, and a dream job. Yeah, and the dream job. And uh, he let me off the hook grudgingly. And a um, another, uh, Marion Burroughs, who was a reporter at the paper, they tapped her to do it. Uh, and she hated the job. I just spoke with her the other day, and she reminded me how much she hated the job. Why didn't they because offer it to me? Yes, yeah, you were at least for Chinatown. I was a foodie. <laughs> so anyway, Marion did it for about nine months, ten months, and it just wasn't working out. So ring, ring, the call guy, I have to go back into Arthur Gelb's office. So he sits me down and he says, now I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. And, you know, this is going to be, you're, you're going to have this great job. You're going to be uh, be able to travel and write what you want. And I, all I wanted to do was go home and take a nap. And so he said, now, uh, I'm, at the time, the executive editor at the paper was uh, Abe Rosenthal. Mm-hmm. So Ar- Arthur says to me, now, he, he walks over to, one side of his office was a big window. I'll never forget. It was looking out over a new Broadway play called A Chorus Line. I just have that image burned in my mind. So Arthur turns to me and says, and when Abe comes in here, if you don't stand up, shake his hand and thank him for this promotion. And he opened the window and said, I'm going to throw you out this goddamn window. (laughs) So that's how I became a restaurant critic. Now, it's it's bipolar 2 disorder. Hasn't it uh, remained largely something of a medical mystery? Do you know what brought it on? No, you know, it's, it's depression is somewhat like cancer. You know, it it comes, we don't know in, you know, in cancer that your cells kind of go crazy. And uh, they... And it's not exactly sure why. And in depression, your neurons, you know, kind of go crazy. And uh, both are hereditary. Uh, Both have treatments that can be pretty brutal. Uh, And so in terms of depression, yeah, depression, uh, bipolar 2 is what I had, which is, um, you know, it's called manic depression, but that, is a widely misused term. Because you, because you weren't manic that often. No. Bipolar 2 people do not 
have the you know the highs in, in my case it was normal to down normal to down you've called it the black bear right right and uh and i could almost set my watch by it it was un- unbelievable it, for a while it was six days for a while it was eight days eight days up eight days down um yeah the bipolar one is where people go out and buy a Bentley on their credit card. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so that was it. And uh, it was just a long process of drugs and, you know, and, and psychotherapy. And I was, I was never all that keen on psychotherapy. I used to say that 11 out of 10 women in Manhattan are in therapy. And men as well, but men don't talk about it. Um, but I'm a believer now. Well, since it, it was chemical, would uh, it's not the same thing as the many of the uh, the things that are treated well by psychotherapy. Well, I had both. In fact, the roots of my depression. I was three years old, and my father died, and. A, when a, a toddler has that experience, you know, you, your, your parents at that point are your, your sole source of, of, of um, loving and caring and security. And when one of them dis, disappears, it's much different from like a 14-year-old or even a 7-year-old. The little child can't articulate it, uh, can't really process what's going on. And if you see... You know, people coming in and out of the house all crying, and this can be devastating to a, to a young child. And, you know, my mother was not aware of that. I, th- I think she sent me away for a while. I don't think I went to the funeral. But um, in any case, that, that, that was the first scar. And, you know, and... Looking back, um, my mother, she was only 21 years old, and she really didn't know how to deal with it. And I was just exposed to a lot of stuff I shouldn't have been. And uh, and just when one parent dies, the child, first of all, comes to believe that he or she caused it. And on top of that, the child thinks, well, if one went, the other's going to go. So that, it's a long story, but that that fear was underlying all my problems. But but does it seem to have hit until 1982 when... Uh, yes, that's the strange thing about, another inscrutable thing about depression. It marinated inside of me for almost 30 years and then popped out. Now... It so happens that the the average age for depression uh, to come on is 30 30. That's the the most common. And when I turned 30, I just woke up one morning and it was like a San Francisco fog. I couldn't everything was opaque. I couldn't, I would have to read the same paragraph in the newspaper over and over and which caused tremendous anxiety. 
so yeah, that's that started. And it was coincidentally, I was, you know, in, in this period where I was um, a candidate for employment at the time. So it couldn't couldn't have been worse. Did it come and go? Because you say it usually took you about four hours to write a review, but when you were depressed, it could take up to two days. Yes, exactly. Um you know, because it was cycling and I knew the length of the cycles when I was feeling well, <laughs> it was kind of a, I was super productive and, you know, did as much work as I could uh, and as much writing. But inevitably, there were times at which I had to write a column. And when I was feeling well, I could do it in about four hours. Uh, when I was depressed, I could only write, and it's hard to explain, explain this, but I could only write like maybe two or three paragraphs, and it was so painful. But you had deadlines, so how did that work? Well, I just worked it out, you know, when between the depressed periods and the normal periods. And so I, uh, I got it done. Just, you know, it was a logistical challenge, that's for sure. My guest on today's London Lopate at Large is Brian Miller, the former columnist for The New York Times, who's written a book called Dining in the Dark, a famed restaurant critic struggle with and triumph over depression. Uh, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, uh, a lot of people obviously would have envied you. Um, how does one become a restaurant critic in the first mm -hmm. place? Well, yeah, I started out as a, like many people, out of uh, college or graduate school and to a small town paper. I was a little cub reporter. In, in Connecticut? Yeah, yeah, um, well, yes, outside of Connecticut, mm -hmm. um, called the Journal Inquirer. And then from there, I, I also did with the, you know, the Hartford Current, the Providence Journal. I was a correspondent for the Associated Press. I covered the Midwest. But all this time, I was always interested in, in food. And when I was at the Providence Journal, and this was also, we're looking at 1980, 1981, which is a time when the media were becoming uh, you know, compartmentalized. The newspapers like the Times had a science section, you know, a food section, a sports section, and CNN you know, had come out, and the news business was changing. And I thought, I don't think it's going to be a good time to remain a general, you know, general reporter. Maybe I should specialize in something. So. I thought, well, food, that's that sounds cushy. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, well, did you take so classes? I was uh, there's a, a Johnson and Wales is a culinary college in Providence. So I took courses there at night um, for about a year. And then uh, after that, I, I had met my girlfriend, uh, future wife. And we wanted to learn more about the business. So we worked in a French bistro also in Connecticut for a year. I was in the kitchen and she was out front. 
Oh, the restaurant was, du village. Restaurant du village. How do you know that? Because I read your book. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, yeah, so we worked there. And that sort of got me started. I just, you know, started sending articles here and there. And uh, you know, it's, I was just saying to someone about how no matter how smart or diligent you think you are, most major events in your life are the result of luck, you know, at the right time, the right place. And I, we were moving out of a restaurant du village and I sent a few food article queries out and really didn't get anywhere. And we were just like going out to the, the, the little truck we had, little van, and the phone rang. Because I had sent an article idea to the New York Times just for fun. And I said, well, there's no way they're going to return the call. Sure enough, it, we, it was the editor of the food section. He liked the story idea, asked if I could do it um, for the next week's paper. And I did it. You know, and then that was it. My, you know, my proverbial foot was in the door. And if we, if I had left five minutes earlier, the call would have gone unanswered. But that's that's really how it started. Although that's still your experiences at uh, at Northeast, uh, the Providence yes. Journal, Connecticut Magazine, et cetera, or a far cry from being a restaurant critic at the New York Times. <clears throat> well, that's right. I didn't go there for that. You, went, I, I you had, went to write I, articles on food instead. Yes, yes. We had a, well, actually for the Northeast Magazine, I was the restaurant critic, and and with my wife, we did a, a food column and a, a restaurant column every week. So, so I had done a little bit of it, but when I w went to the Times, I had no expectation of ever being a restaurant critic. You say that, your experiences uh, in the kitchens led you to understand that untrained critics may lash out at the service staff for delays, but in fact, the fault is in the kitchen. Exactly. You know, the poor servers are often caught in the crossfire. Mm -hmm. And you know, being in the kitchen, I certainly, I never certainly saw food? that. I ordered a long, yeah, where's my food? Didn't I order it yeah. 20 minutes ago? <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, uh, and you know, they take the heat. And, you know, sometimes people will leave a, a diminished uh, tip, which people also have to realize that a tip in this country is not really for for meritorious service it's part of their salary it's built into the business model of restaurants and some people are, have tried to change it but it hasn't really caught on at all uh so and anyway the, you don't use you can't use your tip to punish a waiter because the kitchen was behind but it happens a lot you could be more generous at times to tell the waiter how much you appreciated the service. But oh, yes. The the matter. yes. But it's, it should not be a weapon. Now, you say that in some ways being the Times critic wasn't all that different from your previous posts. If you disregard bribe attempts, physical threats, uh, which required you actually to have an, a New York 
police department bodyguard, uh, photographer stalkings, lawsuits, food poisoning, <laughs> disguises. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, you know, what I meant there was the actual job of tasting food, analyzing service and writing about it was not all that different. But, you know, on that stage, uh, yeah, it was much, much more intense. Were you really uh, poisoned? I'm assuming they didn't do that on purpose. No, that wasn't done on purpose. But I did. uh, I had some death threats, uh, very kind of nasty letters. And this is, you know, before the Internet. So someone had sent me a letter and it was... You know, like like the old uh, like New York in the twenties or thirties. It was a letter in the, but the uh, the letters of the letter were cut out of like tabloids. Oh. <laughs> Basically, it said, uh, you know, we we know you know where you are. We know where your wife is, and it got pretty nasty. And then, do you know what upset the, them? Well, this was interesting because, you know, that I was after two more of these letters came, the paper assigned two uh, detectives to hang around with me, which wasn't the worst job for them. And uh, I I went and said, well, we know it's Italian because the guy was running on about Italian food. So I went over to the where we had the stacks of papers in the newsroom and I went back looking uh, you know, for Italian reviews. And sure enough, like four weeks before, um, I had I had reduced, uh, there was a place called Sal Anthony's. You know, it's on, uh, oh, what's that little, little, uh, I forget. It's, it's near, um, <coughs> it's like in the 30s. Beautiful little park. Uh and we were talking about between Craig Claiborne and me, there were several reviewers, and one of them um, gave the place four stars. And I couldn't believe it. I saw the, um, the sign, so I went in and reviewed it, and it was, you know, it was two stars at best. So that's what prompted the letters. So now we knew who it was. But, but the police said, but we, you know, we have to prove it. We have to have some kind of evidence. And he said, well, how do you do that? And, well, we can go down there and let him know that we know, that you know <laughs> about Brian Miller and don't ever get near him. Or he said, or else we could break his shoes. And I said, break his shoes? What's that mean? He says, well, we, we just go down, call him down have him stand against the wall and step on his shoes and say, you ever come a mile from Brian Miller, mm. you're going to have big trouble. So I said, oh, God, break his shoes. I want to see that. <laughs> and they, they did. They went down, broke his shoes, and the letters stopped. So that's for another book. Well, you mentioned the the New York Times uh, star system. They have uh, employed a, a four-star rating system, plus satisfactory and poor. And you didn't give that restaurant satisfactory or poor. You gave it two stars. That still seems to me to be relatively uh, reasonable. They, they yeah. did, but they uh, anything less than four was going to get you threatened? 
Right. Well, I think if you have if there's a one star restaurant and you bring it up to two, they're delighted. But if you have four stars and they bring it down to two. Yeah. Yeah. So. So how do you calculate those stars? Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's one of the hardest parts of the job. Basically, I informally um, factored in. When I walked in the room, you know, just when the feeling of the room and I could watch the service and, you know, how comfortable and the, the, the dining room is and all. So that's one thing. Two. That was about 25 percent, you say? Yeah, that was about 25 percent. Service and ambiance. Right. But then and there's then, food and wine. <laughs> right. Then, you know, the, the food obviously was was a big part of it. Um, wine a lesser, and then I just had to sit down and uh, you know, after doing it for so long, it sort of just congealed. It came to me, and if I if if the star rating was not clear in my head, I would just go again. You know, some places I would go three, four times, even more. Now you say you went but, to La Bernadette eight times. I envy you that. Yeah, yes, yes. I know. Uh, yeah, it's just it just becomes a, fee- a feeling, you know, and, and people, you know, are what was it? The uh, the um, eater website has no longer does stars. And that issue came up with me a lot. My feeling was. Well, they can be somewhat arbitrary, but as a consumer uh, service, people like to be able to skim and you know see the stars. You know, I, I would like as a writer, I would love to have people you know read the entire review. But in in fact, uh, a lot of people just want to see the stars and they want to go to a three star or four star. And they want to find it fast. Well, they also want to compare the price with the stars. You assume that a really expensive restaurant with a celebrity chef is going to get four stars, but sometimes it was a, a restaurant that would have been more modest. Yes, and the other issue is how price factors into the star rating. Hmm. Um, my feeling was in order to compare apples to apples, so let's say, you know, what will Bernadette to Danielle or two more modest Ooh, places. I, I assign the star based on the absolute quality of the food service and, and all the, you know, the criteria, irrespective of price. So in the review, I will say, you know, I will comment on the pricing and you know, what, what I think about it, but I don't factor it in because once you start factoring in price from this place to that place, um, it, it just gets kind of muddled. So now um, others, you know, my successors don't feel that way. Now, what weren't uh, the designations given to restaurants changing at the time? It had been American, Japanese, Spanish, Greek, French, etc. But now we got California, Asian, French, North African, Mediterranean, Indian, yes. American, and <laughs> and fusion. 
I never even right. understood what fusion was. So what was happening here? I, I had it easy. I, I looked at my first guidebook recently, and it was you know, American, French, Italian. Yeah, there were maybe 10 categories. But, you know, with the globalization of, of cuisine, particularly from from Asia, uh, and there are restaurants that might have two or three distinct uh, you know, <clears throat> cuisines on the menu. And that's, yeah, I get that. I don't know. I haven't been reviewing, but apparently that's what people want today. They want adventures. They want to try something they've never tried before. Uh, you know, in a way, I'm, I'm glad I'm not doing it now because when I did it, when I started, was the very beginning of the you know the so-called American food revolution when you know American chefs who trained in Europe came back with all these different ideas and applied it to American food and it was just fun describing all these new uh, exciting styles of cooking but now I think it's just over the top I think it would be I don't know it's not, you know, not my kind of eating anyway. You ate out five to six nights a week, uh, accompanied <clears throat> by one or two couples, I guess, so you could sample as many as 40 dishes. Did you ever cook at home? <laughs> my wife and I had a, uh, we had a little apartment on West 55th Street. I mean little. And in 10 years, we never turned on the stove. <laughs> <clears throat> we made coffee and that was it. And once a, um, a CNN crew wanted to talk to me about something, and so they came up, and the reporter went over to my refrigerator. I always wanted to see what a restaurant critic's refrigerator mm-hmm. has. She opened it up, and it was Kodak film <laughs> and, and, and milk. <laughs> so... Yeah, no, we, I would say that would be like dozing on guard duty. <laughs> You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Miller talking about his new book called Dining in the Dark, uh, a famed restaurant critic's struggle with and triumph over depression. It is published by Skyhorse. Uh, now, you um, let's talk a bit about, uh, well, first of all, before we get to the depression and how it affected you, mm-hmm. were you ever recognized? Did you ever have to wear a disguise? Uh, no, I'm the top, maybe the top 10 restaurants, you know, in, in New York uh, had reason to find out what I looked like. You know, the average restaurant, like the little place down in the village or um, uh, they don't know me and then it's not on their radar looking for me to come in. But, but I'm sure they were happy if you gave them a good 
Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, but when you're talking about Le Cirque and, um, Le Perigord and even Le Bernardin, those places want to know what I look like. And, and they pretty much can figure it out. But it, so I, I had about a grace period of maybe six to eight months. But then once someone had a picture of me, it was taped in the kitchens of all the other restaurants. So uh, you had to wear a disguise at times. Only once, mm. uh, only once. And uh, and once you was, were banned, weren't you? Once you were banned from a restaurant. Well, that was the place. It was called Cipriani. Mm. Um, and. Uh, yeah, I, I given them a, a pretty poor review, <laughs> and uh, so they didn't let me in. But then they opened a new restaurant, and they weren't going to let me in there either. <laughs> and I really had to go because it was new, it was prominent. So I spoke to my editors because the New York Times has a policy that you cannot misrepresent yourself. Uh, so I sat down with the executive editor, and he said, well... Do you think you could get in? Which meant, do you think you could get a, a disguise? And I said, yeah, I, I, I think I could. So I went and found a friend who was a, uh, she was a hair and makeup artist and she was working on Phantom of the Opera at the time. So she says, come on over to my house, come on over. And she cut my hair and like made it kind of reddish looking. Then she took me down to Soho to buy clothes that I would never wear <laughs> and did a complete makeover. And then I, I to, to test it out, remember in the, the movie Tootsie, I think they went, he wanted to try out the disguise too before he went to work. I think they went like to the Russian tea room. So we went to La Grenouille. Uh, and I was surrounded by like my editors and I kind of shuffled in, sat down, got away with it because they didn't like me either. <laughs> um, and then shuffled out. They said, okay, let's go. So we did go to Cipriani and, uh, I got in the door and I sat with my back to the wall <laughs> and, uh, did my job, but that was the only time. Uh, but when you, you were know, recognized, thing, did that ever lead to your receiving more attentive service than people at the other tables? Well, if they don't know who I am, I mean, also when there are times when a, uh, you know, an average restaurant, a, ni a nice place happens to recognize me, a waiter may have worked some, someplace else, whatever. Um, and when I was working at Restaurant Du Village, I realized when the critics came in, there really was not much we can do because restaurants are all about preparation. So the sauce bases are all made, the vegetables are all prepared, everything's ready to go. Mm. So there's not a whole lot you can do unless you give them a bigger steak or something like that. Well, the, in, the only difference is service. If I felt myself yeah. getting a neck massage, I'll know that we were recognized. <laughs> the column appeared on Fridays, and you say that on Thursday evenings, when the early edition came out, a number of restaurant owners would gather in, in the paper's lobby waiting for the first edition to yes. arrive. 
Uh, you, you must have been aware that you had a lot of power. Well, I had a lot of power by virtue of the fact that there, there were no other weekly restaurant columnists in New York. Um, there was one magazine Gail, that uh, did something. Gail Green. Yeah. Yes, Gail Green and I were the only ones. So, in fact, I sometimes felt uncomfortable that I had too much power uh, and would have been better. And in short order, other critics came on, but it was kind of you know, a little uneasy about that. Now, when did, how uh, much of an impact did the Depression have on you? Uh, you blew off a number of important events, including a major award ceremony at the James Beard Foundation. <clears throat> Yes, I, I mean, may have it, even attended that event. I'm I'm not sure because I've yeah. I've received three James Beard awards, but nothing as prestigious as the one you were going to get. Well, it's you know it's hard to explain, but you know, depression. You are extremely antisocial. You don't want to talk to people, um, and going to you know, going hosting people at dinner was difficult enough. Sometimes it was just so stressful. I had to get up two or three times and go to the men's room and give myself a, a pep talk. In this case, yes, it was uh, a big award, and I'm getting dressed, and I just I just felt awful. And I say it's hard to explain, but I um, started walking down Sixth Avenue to go to this thing, and. I just stopped and there was a bar restaurant nearby. And I said, do I go to the ceremony or do I go to this bar? Do I go to the ceremony or do I go to this bar? So I went to the bar. Yeah, but (laughs) obviously your absence was noted. Uh, Was there any blowback as a result? I'm surprised because the next morning I went to the office and no one mentioned it. I don't it was. I was really surprised that no one confronted me about it, asked me about it. Maybe, maybe they had decided in advance to leave me alone. Um, but yes, and you know, it was it was an awful thing to do to the James Beard Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just think it speaks to how hellish depression is. Uh, and, you know, I made it through those years. And I think it was probably good that I had a very demanding and very social life. Because if I, if I didn't, had not had, you know, deadlines and firm responsibilities, I'd be home watching TV. No, but you also were taking prescription drugs. A doctor first prescribed Nardil, a, a mono yeah. M- what is it called? Monoamine oxidose inhibitor? Uh, yes. Which, uh, that, which treats, which was a regular uh, treatment for depression. You say it gave you the most relief, but you called it an ornery medication and a real party pooper. Yeah. Because, did it yeah. have side effects? Uh, well, fatigue was one, one side effect. <coughs> yeah, it pretty much wiped out your libido at a certain level. And you were a married man. Uh, yes. Was right. this your first marriage or your second at this point? First, first. Um, you know, medication, you know, we were saying about how um, 
depression is not there's it's not been cured like cancer it's not been cured there's no silver bullet but since the 1950s in the development of psychotropic drugs these are drugs that uh treat the the chemical serotonin and dopamine that are related to mood uh so most people need to do trials with one or two or three and eventually they find something that works nothing worked for me what uh, about uh, interactions with foods and and drinks don't some drugs have that, that well, negative side effects in that regard yes nardil turn you know they, they list all kinds of contraindications on the bottle but it's mostly legal protection the only thing i could not eat was aged cheese because it it contained something called tyramine which when it hit the nardil just blew up and uh i wound up in the hospital one day because i took it in the office and, and i um had some feta cheese in a salad. And what it does is it, your, your blood pressure will go sky high. Mm. And I was rolled out in a gurney from the newsroom. Uh, so yes, I was taking like about 114 pills a week. And yeah. I, I, we mentioned that you were married twice during those years to Anne mm -hmm. and Mireille. Um, right. Uh, did the depression create marital problems? You say uh, you also lost a good number of friends. Yeah, well, with the wives, it was more complicated. In fact, I'm spending Christmas with Anne in France. So, you know, she she understands what happened uh, and that I was just, you know, uh, what can I say? I just, just was not myself. Um and what was it, what were we asking again? I forget. Well, I was asking you just about how much of an impact it had on the two marriages, which yes, both ended. definitely, and, and they were saints. They were both they were both really into food, so that was a positive. Yes, yes. Uh, Ann had the best palate I've ever seen. She could you know, take a sauce and break down exactly what's in it. So she was fantastic when we, you know we started. She was. You know, going out on all, all the dinners. Um, yes, it, you know, I, I I left. Depression does tend to leave a lot of collateral damage. And in the book, there's a lot about women and my dysfunctional hmm. relationship with women directly tied to being three years old, you know, and losing my father and then my mother. Uh, dealing with it in a, in a un, sort of unhealthy way, uh, not in any nefarious way, but just that she she didn't know and, and just made me more scared. Uh, so, yeah, so that's, uh, and it just, you know, I made it, I guess I was at almost 20 years at the paper. I, I just can't believe it. Well, I can't believe I made it. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Lunch <laughs> is Brian Miller. His uh, book, Dining in the Dark, a famed restaurant critic's struggle with and triumph over depression, is published by Skyhorse Publishing. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Uh, 
We're streaming live at WBAI.org. If the depression wasn't enough at one point, didn't you discover you'd gotten a brain tumor? Oh, yeah. we. Uh, and that had a really, you say it, 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 uh, getting rid of it eventually made one of your ears decorative. I, I feel like I'm piling it on. You also it's under, it's like, underwent uh, electroshock therapy. Yeah. You had a near-fatal bout with Lyme disease. And then you had some accidental drug overdoses. Yeah. Well, they say it's like football. Once you're down, it doesn't matter how many people pile on top of you. Uh, yes, the um, yeah, the brain tumor uh, was not fun. That came after I'd left the Times. Uh, it was done out in California. It was called an acoustic neuroma in which the tumor is on the brain, but it envelops the nerve that goes from your ear to your brain. So in order to get the tumor, they cut the nerve. So I have no hearing in one ear. Um, the, the electroshock was uh, not as bad as it sounds. It wasn't Jack Nicholson in Cuckoo's Nest or anything <laughs> like that. But nothing had worked for me. I, I, every medication in the books, and I had a great psychopharmacologist, but we just couldn't stop the cycling. So, you know, ECT has a very high, quote, cure rate, whatever cure means, uh, like above 80, 85 percent. So, I thought, okay, let's, let's do it. And, uh, you know, I had a session, I think like eight, eight visits, uh, didn't do anything. Then we came back for another round, and that didn't do anything. And on top of that, uh, ECT can cause uh, short-term memory loss. And that was more scary than the ECT. So what led you to finally leave the New York Times? Was it all of these? Well, some of these things happened afterward, but um, (sighs) were you just overwhelmed at a certain point? Yeah, I just, I know just one day, I just... I said to myself, I can't do this anymore. And I just, it, yeah, it was just I had reached a point where <laughs> I couldn't continue. So I walked into the office of Joe Lelyveld, the executive editor, and I told him everything. And I, I walked out the building, you know, all my things on my desk in the middle of doing a story. I just never walked, never returned. Hmm. And then you had to find other ways to survive. So you tried teaching writing. Uh, yeah, I tried. I tried teaching. Editing. I tried a bunch of things, but the immediate years after leaving the Times are sort of a fog. Hmm. And uh, you know, it wasn't any better than being at the Times. I mean, I, I should not have left, but there was no one to talk me out of it. Uh, and uh, as I said, because of being busy, depressed is no worse than doing nothing depressed. So, so you, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I just basically cobbled together some things, uh, freelancing, and uh, then I got to the point I thought, well, maybe there's a book in all of this. And 
just started that, you know, on and off for like 10 years. This book? Yeah. But meanwhile, you were unable to work. You lost your mm -hmm. home. You lost your life savings. Mm -hmm. your, your marriage fell apart. Mm -hmm. uh, you became increasingly reclusive. Uh, didn't you reach a point where you were even afraid to answer the phone? Yes, that was mostly in the office because, mm -hmm. you know, once again, the depressed people find everything painful and particularly you know, social engagement. And for some reason, talking on the phone is extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard. To, uh, if, I, if I were to say this to a, another person who suffered depression, they would understand exactly what I'm talking about. But it's, so it's hard to convey something that seems so irrational. Did you? But, uh, yeah, I just kind of holed up in the country and just tried to scrape out a living. And, and then you got you got to a point where you learned from a bank statement that your net worth was just $16.10. That's rock yes, bottom. So how do you get past all of that? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not even sure. I, I did a little bit of freelancing. Uh... You know, just little pickup jobs here and there. I did several books. I did a book called Cooking for Dummies. I, uh, you know, co-wrote the, uh, the biography of Pierre Frenet. <clears throat> and, you know, that was very difficult, but, you know, I managed to do that. And, uh, I mean, basically, I, I, I've never recovered. You know, never come back to where I was. To this day? Yeah. To this day, yeah. But you did allow yourself to finally become a father. Yes. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you very briefly, um, the, the ending of the book, people will not believe. They're going to think I made it up for a dramatic ending of the book. <laughs> In any case, we go back to when I'm, you know, I'm three years old. These horrible things happen to me. My father's gone. I mean, and I, you know, grow up with this huge emotional hole in me, and it comes back when I'm 30, and pretty much ruins my life. So anyway, I'm in the hospital, and I get up that day and say, um, "Oh my God, I have, my son's being born today." And I, I just this is not with either of your wives, right? No, it's wife number three. Uh -huh. Okay, <laughs> uh, so. I didn't want to be there. In any case, the, he is born, and they swaddle him up, and they hand him to me. Hmm. And as soon as they hand him to me, I feel my head clearing from, from the depression. Now, this has happened hundreds of times before during cycling, but I, there was something different about it. So I'm holding him and holding him. And then like, half hour later, I, go, I would go to get the car, and I come out of the garage and I said to myself, I just pulled up on the curb and I said, it's over. I know it's over. And from that moment, I haven't had any depression. Ah, so that's just stopped. So he filled whatever hole was, you know. Yeah, but you, you wrote 
uh, I'm reacquainted with life and said that you, it was your hope that uh, the coping mechanisms you employed in order to get through the day will be a benefit to others who are suffering with mm-hmm. severe de- super- depression. Well, does that mean they all have to have a child? No, no. But in the book, I talk about things like, um, and we have very little time, so you have to make it quick. You have less. Well, just like you know, taking walks, uh, breaking up your work into two or three segments during the day, working at home whenever you can, things like that. Little little tips on getting through the day. That's all. Brian Miller's latest book. He is, by the way, written in co or co-written nine books altogether. His latest is Dining in the Dark, a famed restaurant critic struggle <laughs> with uh, and triumph over depression. It's published by Skyhorse. Uh, he was a reporter and a columnist at the New York Times for 15 years, and it has been my great pleasure to have him on our show today. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Leonard. It's an honor. Well, I, I'm sure it was kind of difficult to talk about some of those things, so I appreciate how open you were. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Leonard Lopez at Largest Executive Producer, Jesse Lynn, for all the work that they do throughout the week. You can access our archive of past shows at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you want to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. That's 212-209-2950. And you might consider becoming a sustaining member, which allows us to to also prepare for the future, $10 or more a month. We need your help to continue to bring you this unique in-depth content because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. So if you tune in regularly to uh, and appreciate uh, what we do here at Leonard Lopez at Large, why not let us know uh, that you like what we do on this show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's entirely listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible donation. To everyone who has already stepped up to support the station in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, my great thanks, and I hope that you can join us again for Monday's show when Art Cohn will discuss his new book, Trump You, Promises, Lies, and Corruption, My Battle with Donald Trump's Fake University. You won't want to miss it. Have a great weekend.